This is Open Book, a podcast about interpreting literature, with Michael Elliott. Welcome to Open Book, Season 2, Episode 8, How to Read W.H. Auden. I'm Michael Elliott, Associate Professor of English at the University of Calgary. Today's topic is three poems by the English poet Whiston Hugh Auden, 1907-1973. I say English, and yet Auden is decidedly an international poet. After he graduated with an English degree from Oxford, he spent long periods in Germany, Iceland, China, Spain, Italy, and Austria, though he lived most of his latter life in America. Auden taught, he wrote plays, reviews, and opera libretti. He mentored and edited poets. He had affairs with various other writers, Christopher Isherwood, Michael Yates, David Impey, Chester Simon Kalman. Auden wrote poetry with a spirit of wry observation. He described the horrors of war and the banality of evil with a mix of detachment and compassion. Auden knew that his poetry wouldn't change the modern world, but it could and did outlast it by changing how we think about experience and empathy. One of Auden's most quoted observations comes in his elegy, quote, In Memory of W.B. Yeats, line 36 following, reads, For poetry makes nothing happen. It survives in the valley of its saying where executives would never want to tamper. It survives a way of happening, a mouth. In this episode, we're going to read three poems by Whiston Hugh Autumn. The first is Funeral Blues, another elegy or death poem famous for its heartbreaking recitation in the 1994 film Four Weddings and a Funeral. The second poem is Musée des Beaux-Arts, his best-known poem about the banality of suffering in an indifferent world. And finally, the Shield of Achilles, the titular poem of Auden's 1955 collection, and one of my favorite poems of the century. It takes an extended description from Homer's ancient Greek epic, The Iliad, and sets its beautiful vision in a debased world of mindless authoritarianism, public executions, and rank indifference to the suffering of others. So, without further ado, let's begin with Funeral Blues. And for each of these three poems, I'm going to read it first and then analyze it in pieces. Stop all the clocks. Cut off the telephone. Prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Silence the pianos, and with muffled drum bring out the coffin. Let the mourners come. Let aeroplanes circle moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky the message, He is dead. Put crepe bows round the white necks of the public doves. Let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week and my Sunday rest, my noon, my midnight, my talk, my song, I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now. 
put out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood. For nothing now can ever come to any good. Auden originally wrote this poem for a verse play with Christopher Isherwood called The Ascent of F6 in 1936. And so the original setting of it was actually for, as the note tells you, a satirical lament for a dead politician. And yet there's a a tone of sincerity, a tone of sincere mourning that does not feel like satire. Tone is one of those difficult features of a poem to analyze in an objective way. Largely because tone is very much a combination of the performance of a text, but also of the diction or word choices that the text is making. I'll confess that the recitation of this poem in that film I mentioned, uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, has uh, an effect on my interpretation. It's very hard as a result of uh, that moment, which is a moment of high seriousness, of sincere mourning of one man for another, that makes it very difficult for me to see this as anything but a, a, a serious lament. I'm immediately struck when I look at this poem on the page by the regularity of its structure. Four lines per stanza and four stanzas, each with the series of couplets rhyming A-A-B-B all the way through to the end. And yet, despite the intense feeling uh, that this poem is conveying, it is regardless, set forward in a really regular and self-regulated structure. The only indication that you have that this is an an elegy, which is a poem that is uh, recited over, or, or rather on the occasion of the death of someone, is the title Funeral Blues, and also then the sign in, in uh, or the, the statement rather in line six that he is dead. We discover nothing about who he is. We only discover the feeling that the speaker has toward him. The first two stanzas are all about the fact that the speaker is mourning. The speaker wishes for others to mourn with him, for others to also feel this sense of loss, of despair. In the first stanza, the way that he conveys this is through a series of imperative verbs, stop, cut off, prevent, silence, bring out. And each of those verbs, initially at least, is about silencing things, silencing the, the kinds of mechanisms for measuring time, for contacting other people, the animals that are indifferent to, unaware of the, uh, the, the thing that has happened, uh, the sounds of celebration uh, of the piano. After that series of imperative verbs, you have more passive-sounding verbs. Let the mourners come. Let aeroplanes circle. Let the traffic policemen. 
This second stanza is very decisively more, I think, in the in the public sphere. So you've gone from a kind of domestic scene of clocks and telephones and dogs and, and pianos and so on to bringing out the coffin into a space that is more public, a space where aeroplanes circle overhead writing in the sky. And if you don't know what that means, it's actually a reference to something that happened Literally, um, something I have never seen, but I've seen depicted in, in films, in, in comic books, and in, in uh, pictures, etc., of a skywriter. Literally, a plane that trails behind it, a, a plume of smoke that is following behind it, um, like a like a permanent line in the sky, and thus allows you to write messages, simple messages usually, like, he is dead. Notice the word choice in line five of the airplanes moaning overhead. You might call that the pathetic fallacy, the idea of uh, an inanimate thing having human emotions. The latter part of that stanza is more about the sort of commemorations and public ceremonies. So doves would be released on sort of grand occasions to signal, say, the signing of a peace accord of some kind. Uh, the traffic policeman, again, not something that we see very often anymore, but is the policeman who stands in the middle of an intersection waving cars through and ordering them to stop and keeping order. And accordingly in a moment of public recognition, uh, would wear perhaps a mourning black armband, uh, in this case, a black pair of cotton gloves. And so after these initial two stanzas, which are, again, all about the kind of domestic sphere and then the public sphere, you have a, a sudden transition to me, the speaker, the only moment when my and I get mentioned. It's really only in this third stanza. And that stanza is going to also use a couple of spatial uh, and other metaphors to try to give a sense to us what his death means to the speaker, what he was when he lived. He was a presence who filled all the cardinal points on the compass, the north, south, east, and west, all the places. He also, in line 10, filled all of the times, uh, the regular cycles of, of work life, uh, of, of days and midnight, also of words, talk, and song that I, um, that I spoke with him. And then, finally, we have this the most heartbreaking line of the whole poem, I think, line 12, I thought that love would last forever, and then that devastating colon and conclusion, I was wrong. In fact, what forever means, or has rather turned into, is the a recognition of how ephemeral love is. Line 13 in the last stanza gives us a shift of verb Again, we've gone from, notice we had the imperatives at the beginning, stop, cut off, prevent, silence, bring out, etc. And then the shift to the more passive construction, let them come, let, the, let them circle, let them wear. 
to the third stanza, which has all of these um, direct list-like declarations of who he was to me, me the speaker. Now we have a shift into a very passive voice. The stars are not wanted now. This is the sort of sentence that you wouldn't get away with if you were writing an essay. Uh, it would be a passive voice construction. The question being, not wanted by whom? Who does not want them? Well, there's in poetry a deliberate, in this poem especially, a very deliberate ambiguity. Who does not want them? Well, probably the speaker himself, but also others who might look on them. They can all be now, in the, again, in the imperative uh, uh, verbs, put out everyone, pack up the moon, dismantle the sun. This is again kind of like in line nine where you saw the, the scope of the, of the points of the compass. Now you have an even more cosmic scope, obviously. And then earthly with uh, the ocean and the wood. These are all sources, you might say, of inspiration, of consolation. They're the sorts of things that poets write about. But also that someone like the speaker might have looked to as a source of promise, something that could come to good. But in fact, the death of his beloved tells him that nothing can come to any good. And that sense of despair that extends beyond his experience and into the entirety of the universe, of everything, everything that must be silenced, everything that must be put away, that is a, a very solid, very, very strong, very emphatic measure of the depths of despair and the scope of his despair that he's feeling. Auden's Musée des Beaux-Arts is also a poem about death, among other momentous events. But it's very much about the indifference rather than the recognition that many of death's observers pay to it. Here's my reading of the poem in full. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position. How it takes place while someone else is eating, or opening a window, or just walking dully along. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course anyhow in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water, and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to 
and sailed calmly on. I utterly love this poem. The first thing that I love about it is a little bit nerdy, but it's the enjambments. It's the variable line lengths. Look at how many of these lines continue, sorry, the sentences or clauses rather, continue past the ends of its lines. How many caesuras or pauses there are in the midst of lines. Two uh, breaks in lines two and three and all the way through. There are all these breaks that come in the center of lines. The other thing I confess that I really love about it is the way that it is what's sometimes called ekphrastic. E-K-P-H-R-A-S-T-I-C. That's a $10 word for descriptive. It's a description of an object or thing. I think, for example, of John Keats's famous Ode on a Grecian Urn. It's a description of an object probably in the British Museum, a Grecian urn that stands there and has representations of things that Keats describes. And yet, and yet, it's so much more than, obviously, a technical description. It uses the object as an imaginative launchpad, an imaginative source for things that it's going to describe. By the way, just as a preview, this is what's going to happen in a moment in the Shield of Achilles. In this case, uh, the Musée des Beaux-Arts is a poem about a series of paintings by the Flemish artist Peter Bruegel. You may remember from a couple of episodes ago that I mentioned the dictum, or I, I issued the decree, I suppose you could say, of always reading the footnotes. Well, here the footnotes in the Norton Anthology of Poetry tell you they tell you a couple of things that are important, but most importantly for what I'm talking about here is that this is alluding to a series of paintings that Bruegel, who's otherwise quite obscure, I must admit, I'd not, I would not have heard of him or know very much about him were it not for Auden. Bruegel did a series of paintings, including one of the fall of Icarus, one of the Nativity of Christ, another one of a horse scratching its rump, <laughs> and finally uh, one of a winter landscape with, with skaters. And so all of these details that, uh, that Auden is referring to are real. They are real insofar as they are a sort of a composite painting, but he is talking about the old masters, plural, it's a bit of a misstatement or a misnomer, rather, because it's not talking about a series of old masters. He's talking exclusively about Peter Bruegel. Bruegel is not wrong about suffering, to paraphrase the opening lines. And it's not the nature of suffering that Bruegel is so adept at representing it. It's the human position in line three. Remember back to Funeral Blues, how the entirety of the poem was about how everything must stop, about how all sources of beauty and consolation and distraction and noise and indifference, all of those things must stop because he, has, he is dead. Well, in Musée des Beaux-Arts, he is first Christ and then he is Icarus. We'll come to Icarus in a minute, but first, it's not just suffering that uh, Auden is speaking about. It's also the 
truly momentous event of uh, line six, the miraculous birth, that the aged, the old people, are reverently and passionately awaiting, while, meanwhile, in contrast, children are more or less indifferent to it. I love the, the casualness of that line. Children did not specially want it to happen. They didn't really care, in other words. They were entertaining themselves then uh, by skating on, on, on the pond. Then in line nine, the referent they is not the children or the aged, but going all the way back to line two, the old masters. They never forgot. And here we get a leap from the birth of Christ in uh, line six, all the way to the dreadful martyrdom, the, the death of Christ. The dreadful martyrdom must run its course, the kind of phrase that you use when you're referring to, in a sort of dismissive way, to things that sort of necessarily must happen. It happens in a corner, a corner of a canvas, but also in some forgotten corner of the world. A place where ordinary things, where animals go about innocently, indifferently, like the dog barking in uh, Funeral Blues, innocent of the sort of human investment that we put into these things. Auden then switches kind of abruptly in line 14 to a new phase, a new instance, that is, an instance of how Suffering has a human position. Suffering happens at the margins of others going about their business, of others skating and scratching their behinds. But here he expands the scope a little bit. Before I go into it, let me say who Icarus is. And again, the footnotes tell you that this is a story from ancient Greek mythology about a young man and his father who escape prison but the young man, they escape prison by, by donning these, these wings that are attached to their bodies with wax. But the young man is so enamored of, of the freedom of flight that he flies too high toward the sun. And resultantly, the wings, or rather, the wax loosens and they fall off and he falls to his death. Now, this is represented, or rather described and depicted and recounted as one of these grand moments. After all, it's from Greek mythology. It's one of these moments that is recounted as a, well, among other things, a a sign that you shouldn't fly too close to the sun. But no, not in the public service announcement kind of way, more in the allegorical kind of way. Those of you who know the musical Hamilton by Lin-Manuel Miranda will recognize that this gets uh, cited in, in that song, or rather that musical. Anyway, the, the fact is, it is a very momentous event, and yet, for those who are, were around when it happened, it wasn't very momentous at all. It's only, in other words, the depictions, the efforts that people make later in order to turn it into something that has an allegorical meaning, much like the uh, miraculous birth, much like the dreadful martyrdom. Both of those adjectives, for example, miraculous and dreadful, are added later on, added by others, added by observers. But, as Auden says, not all observers add those adjectives. Anyway, so everything beyond the humans, look at line 14, everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. It is, in other words, not really 
a disaster for the plowman. The sun is more or less indifferent. Uh, And the ship, the expensive, delicate ship, well, it has a schedule to keep. It has somewhere to get to. So, in other words, there is both in the plowman, but then later on there's a sort of this cosmic indifference, this mechanistic modern life indifference. Why would we care? We have places to get. We have fields to plow. And again, all of the importance that is, well, imported into, or rather uh, imposed upon events like Christ's birth, Christ's death, Icarus's fall, those are all external. Those are all anterior. Those are all later uh, decisions by others. Decisions, that is, to give suffering a meaning, to give it a momentousness, to give it meaning, in other words, that was not evident at the time. And resultantly, I think, there are two points that Auden is, is making here. One is that we are overly indifferent to the sufferings of others. Two, though, the sufferings of others are only momentous, are only large or important by the efforts of those who make them so. And so accordingly, perhaps, we should see them as they were intrinsically, as they were experientially, not as they are represented latterly. The Shield of Achilles is also, like the Musée des Beaux-Arts, an ekphrastic poem, and yet it's also a poem about another ekphrasis, that a description that has happened in a famous other instance. In this case, we're talking about the extended description that Homer gives to the shield of Achilles, as the title suggests, in book 16 to 17 of the Iliad. What's famous about this description uh, is the way that the shield, which the, the god of the forge, Hephaestus, or Vulcan in, the, in, um, in Roman mythology, uh, Hephaestus in the Greek, uh, the, the god has created this shield, among other pieces of armor, for Achilles to protect him. But it is so much more than a utilitarian piece of of armor. It is highly decorative, as the note tells you. It is covered with the most elaborate, the most impossibly elaborate scenes. So, before we read this poem, the reader is supposed to know what it is that Thetis, that's Achilles' mother, is expecting to see. Or another way of saying it is that there are things that the reader expects to see. The reader expects to see scenes of of joyful life, of people in cities, people in uh, the entire planetary spheres encircling the land and the oceans and the ships and the, the the games, the Olympic games that are depicted, and all manner of like an extraordinary amount of life is depicted. But that's in Homer. This is quite different. Here is Auden himself reading the poem. And just by way of explanation, she is Thetis, and he 
Yes, Hephaestus. She looked over his shoulder for vines and olive trees, marble well-governed cities and ships upon untamed seas. But there on the shining metal his hands had put instead an artificial wilderness and a sky like lead. A plain without a feature, bare and brown, no blade of grass, no sign of neighbourhood, nothing to eat and nowhere to sit down. Yet congregated on its blankness stood an unintelligible multitude, a million eyes, a million boots in line, without expression, waiting for a sign. Out of the air, a voice without a face, proved by statistics that some cause was just, in tones as dry and level as the place. No one was cheered and nothing was discussed. Column by column in a cloud of dust, they marched away, enduring a belief whose logic brought them somewhere else to grief. I will just interrupt you there, Whiston, if I may, because this is a good moment to pause and examine the meaning of some of the references that you've made, or that Auden has made. It's also the division point between, I guess what you could call the, the three stages, the three phases of this poem, because it has this refrain of sorts. She looked over his shoulder. She looked over his shoulder. Line 1, line 23, line 45. Line 5 is really where Thetis's expectations are thwarted by what she sees. Instead of the cities and the ships that she expects, and we're going to learn later that she's expecting ritual pieties, she's expecting athletes and dancing. Instead of all that, she sees an artificial wilderness. Auden uses other terms like blankness. And in that second stanza that starts in line nine, he begins by listing all of the things that the scene lacks, all the things that you might, she might have expected, she does, has expected, but it has no features. It has, moreover, no grass, no where to sit, nothing to eat, etc., this is a barren landscape, a landscape of death, a landscape of emptiness, a wilderness. The shield is, I suppose, characteristically or famously made of a very beautiful, shining silver metal. And yet the sky is like lead. It is dull. It is debased. It is also, we learn soon, a place where vast, unintelligible, expressionless armies, millions of men, stand awaiting their orders. Auden has a similar-ish poem, much shorter, called Epitaph on a Tyrant, a few pages earlier in the uh, Norton Anthology of Poetry, in which it begins, Perfection of a kind was what he was after, and the poetry he invented was easy to understand. Tyrants, in other words, issue orders and decrees that sound poetic and yet are quite simple. In this case, line 17, the statistics that the faceless voice of their commanding officer or of their tyrant or of their leader issues, 
proves in this vague endeavor that some cause was just, and like automatons, the unintelligible, and it sounds like unintelligent multitude, marches away. Look at the expression, or rather the the, the word choice, enduring a belief, line 21. Enduring a belief whose logic brought them somewhere else to grief. To be brought to grief is to die. And so this is just the beginning. This is just the place, the, the marshalling ground, where they assemble before they go off to die in this vague cause. The contrast isn't just between the beauty of Homer's description and the dull, lead-like sky and artificial wilderness of Auden's, or between uh, Thetis's expectations and the dull reality that she sees. It isn't just that. The contrast is also between some of the glorification of war, of which Homer is incredibly guilty throughout the Iliad. The glorification of war contrasts with the reality of its experience, particularly in the 20th century. Let's let Whiston now pick up with the second phase of the poem. She looked over his shoulder for ritual pieties, white flower-garlanded heifers, libation and sacrifice. But there on the shining metal where the altar should have been, she saw by his flickering forge light quite another scene. Barbed wire enclosed an arbitrary spot where bored officials lounged, one cracked a joke, and sentries sweated for the day was hot. A crowd of ordinary decent folk watched from without and neither moved nor spoke as three pale figures were led forth and bound to three posts driven upright in the ground. The mass and majesty of this world all that carries weight and always weighs the same lay in the hands of others. They were small and could not hope for help, and no help came. What their foes liked to do was done. Their shame was all the worst could wish. They lost their pride and died as men before their bodies died. One more brief introduction before I let you finish. Here you can see a number of things. Actually, one of the things I notice is that uh, that Auden reads his own poem, or rather his own enjambments, um, kind of selectively. Now, when I read a poem aloud and there isn't punctuation at the end of a line, I tend deliberately not to pause. So I would read... She saw by his flickering forge light quite another scene without a pause between forge light and quite, but he pauses. He does that all the way through the, the next stanza, and then he doesn't do it in line 38. Anyway, the effect is that the, you can really sense the, the metrical arrangement. You can really sense the meter of these lines. You can really sense that a line has ended and that a rhyme, rhyming word, is something that you need to remember that is coming forward. Anyway, so the other thing that you get here is she's expecting, 
libation and sacrifice. Now, they sacrificed, the Greeks sacrificed heifers, they sacrificed uh, animals. Instead, what she sees, instead of the altar, another scene. What's the scene? It's the crucifixion of Christ. Three, in other words, a human sacrifice rather than an animal one. Three pale figures led forth and bound to three posts driven upright in the ground. That stanza, to me, feels the most like Musée des Beaux-Arts because where it, number one, it repeats that incident, the moment of the, what did he call it? The dreadful martyrdom. That happens again, so it happens in another poem, but also that it's happening in what he calls an arbitrary spot. Uh, There are what he calls ordinary decent folk. These are like the observers, the common people who think themselves quite decent and yet are watching a public execution. These three, including Christ, can't hope for any deliverance, any, any freedom from this, any escape. The mass and majesty of the world were in the hands of others. In other words, that also means that their punishment is in the hands of others. They were small. No help came. Their foes did what they wished to do. And the horrifying, the most horrifying aspect of it is the way that they died as men before their bodies died. Meaning that it's not only, of course, just the the act of murdering them or killing them in this way. It's also the way that it exhibits that act. It's the way that it takes away all of their agency. It's the way that it loses for them any sense of dignity, certainly of autonomy. Anyway, now here's Auden reading the final section. She looked over his shoulder for athletes of their games. Men and women in a dance, moving their sweet limbs, quick, quick to music. But there on the shining shield, his hands had set no dancing floor, but a weed-choked field. A ragged urchin, aimless and alone, loitered about that vacancy. A bird flew up to safety from his well-aimed stone. That girls are raped, The two boys knife a third were axioms to him who had never heard of any world where promises were kept or one could weep because another wept. The thin-lipped armourer, Hephaestus, hobbled away. Thetis of the shining breasts cried out in dismay at what the god had wrought to please her son, the strong, iron-hearted, man-slaying Achilles, who would not live long. This weed-choked field in 52 is reminiscent of the artificial wilderness, the featureless plain that the army departed from. But this time there's only a ragged urchin uh, throwing a stone at a bird. He has these axioms, that's a word in 57, that means governing beliefs or assumptions. He has these axioms that suffering happens, that rape and murder are normal, that promises are not kept, or that empathy uh, is not possible. And this is the simple description, the shorter description of what she sees in this third phase. And then we finally get a coda, a sort of conclusion to Thetis looking at Hephaestus's armor 
and she cries out in dismay at what the god had wrought. Now, to to reek something, W-R-E-A-K, is to make it. But if you're a god, also to cause it. There's a line from the Book of Numbers, what hath God wrought, which uh, is famous and is, is certainly what Auden is referencing here. It also, by the way, is the first phrase that Samuel Morse, inventor of the telegraph, well, one of the pioneers of the telegraph anyway, along with Marconi, sent by telegraph. Anyway, the god has made the shield, but he's also wrought. God has wrought the horrors of the modern world, the horrors of this world of no empathy, of crucifixions, of statistical military campaigns. And then finally, there's this devastating line about how he had wrought it to please her son, line 65. In other words, he's made this armor literally to bring happiness at the request of Achilles' mother to please him, but also he will be pleased with his early death. Because in fact, Achilles has made a choice. This is a bit of an important context. Achilles makes a choice earlier in his life that he is not going to live a long, dull, uneventful life. He's going to live a short, glorious life. And he is going to die by the sword. That he is going to be praised as strong, iron-hearted, man-slaying Achilles. These are all sort of Homeric epithets. But he will not live long. And the deflation, the deflation and the finality of that last line is so devastating. And it's ultimately uh, Auden's direct and deliberate contrast between the glories of the rhetorical glories, anyway, of the Homeric system of uh, praise and uh, Thetis's expectations and the debased world with a sky like lead in which heroes must live in the 20th century. You've been listening to Open Book, a podcast about interpreting literature with Michael Elliott. The next episode is on the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas. Meanwhile, you can search me up in the usual places. It should turn up my blog if you spell my surname U-L-L-Y-O-T or go straight there by typing j.mp slash Elliot. You can also find me on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter, and now also Goodreads in descending order of regularity. And then there's old-fashioned email, U-L-L-Y-O-T at U-Calgary, that's U-C-A-L-G-A-R-Y dot C-A. The music from this episode is courtesy of the Open Goldberg Variations Project and performed by Kimiko Ishizaka.